Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam Morris, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy Bowman. Hello. And Tessa Suela. Hello. This is the fourth and final week of Spooktober. Wrong. Woo! Wrong. Do it right, Sam. Come on. You're the host. I'm not. I'm not. I have a different bit. If you want to do the bit, you can do the bit. No, go ahead. Okay. So as I was putting together the notes for last week's episode, I referred to it in the show notes as Spooktober 3, Son of Spooktober. And that really got me to thinking about all the awesome sequel names for horror series. And so this is Spooktober 4. And there are a lot of places we can go, but I thought... Let's just go with non-horror sequel titles. So I have started off pretty good. Spooktober 4, The Voyage Home. Spooktober 4, The Quest for Peace. (laughs) And then I kept going. The next one on my list is Spooktober 4. Sofia Coppola's in it. But instead of talking about how terrible she is and how she drags the whole movie down, we recognize the fact that she has genuine talent. That's The Godfather. And then I just kept going. I've got Spooktober 4, Fury Road. Live Free, or Spooktober Hard. Spooktober Resurrection. This is going somewhere. Spooktober First Class. Spooktober and Robin. Here's my favorite. Spooktober Ghost Protocol. Is it bad that I didn't realize most of those were fourth movies until you mentioned them just now? They are all fourth movies. You gotta like it. (sighs) Wow, that that went over good. Okay. In this episode, Tessa dons a rubber suit, Andy goes crazy because of colors, and I learned that the true horror of Resident Evil is that the ability to save your game is a finite resource. Before we get into Spooktober 4, Ghost Protocol, in three weeks, we're going to do our next theme episode on heists. In addition to our individual heist-related monkeys, which I think you'll be very happy about, we'll be discussing the classic 1948 Humphrey Bogart film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Get ready for it by watching or re-watching the film yourself, and then send us your thoughts and questions so that we can include you, the listener, in the episode. And I will also say there will be a fun drinking game during this episode, I imagine, any time that Nicolas Cage or National Treasure is mentioned, you take a shot. Do we want them to get alcohol poisoning? Do we uh, do we play it ourselves during the recording, Sam? I, I guess we'll have to see how we feel in three weeks. <laughs> Such a bad idea. <laughs> okay, so before we get into our last week of spooktober i said that already the second discussion question of the day if you're hearing this it's because we just had a 40 minute discussion and decided to cut it out and make it a bonus episode so the question that i wanted to ask you today is how do you manage pop culture productivity when there is so much else going on that you cannot even find 5 minutes to sit down and watch read or play anything what do you do? How do you handle that moment? Audiobooks and crying. Like at the same time? Oh, all the time. So that's like, no. so what you're saying is, is like audiobooks and crying is the pandemic stress version of Netflix and chill. 
I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yeah, we are going with that. That is yes. That's that's the clip of the episode right there. I, I like it. We did it. I I, <laughs> we, I just we, made my new Tinder bio. We we talked for forty. We talked for forty minutes about all the pop culture that 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 we're disappointed and not about not being able to see, and the ones we're still going to be able to see, and what we think is going to happen. We went completely off the rails, and as soon as I asked you that question, you came up with the golden nugget of the episode, Andy. That's that's great. <laughs> Audiobooks and crying. Audiobooks and crying. I like it. I mean, I think that one of the good things about this podcast is that it gives me at least a semblance of a deadline for getting some stuff done. So it takes a lot of the indecisiveness out of my pop culture consumer habits i guess because i'm just like okay i have to talk about american horror story in you know two weeks i need to get started on that and so that it makes it easier for me to find time to do those things and it takes a lot of the like decision making process out of it honestly pop culture has always been my way of dealing with my executive dysfunction um if i can't figure out what i'm doing i just sort of go back to pop culture so i i don't know like i Pop culture has been getting me through this pandemic in a lot of ways, and I guess that's sort of a weird, long-winded answer. It's not as good as the as the audiobooks and crying, but that's definitely where I am at this point. All right. Sam, what do you do? Uh, all the things that are preventing me from enjoying pop culture. All the all the it's it's great. And I'll say that it's a it's a it's a real privilege at at this point to have a job and to be able to stay at home. Uh, and stay safe that way. But boy, does it make work so much more. There's so much more to do. It never ends. It's hard to create that good balance, especially as things just drag on and on and on. And so I found myself, so I'll be talking about Cobra Kai next week, and I still have two more episodes to finish, and I love that show so much. I cannot wait to talk about it, but I can't find the time to watch two more half hour episodes in the last few days and it's just it's tough and it's 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 very frustrating and i remember the the meme back in march and april i watched all the things and i'm bored how dare you how dare you early pandemic people how dare you say you were bored you jinxed us so you do believe <laughs> in jinxes outside of sports yeah I do. Yeah, but only in soul-crushing life uh, or death situations. It's a, it's a very BoJack move. By the way, have you finished BoJack yet? You you actually froze. I asked Andy if he liked BoJack, if he had finished it yet. His face, it's great. His face is frozen, and he's super excited. Oh, wait, he's back. Andy, have you finished BoJack? I, I actually, I have. I finished it last week, and it was wonderful. I Wasn't it great? It it was it was wonderful. I it it was the best thing I ever hated watching. Uh I will I, I loved it, I laughed, I, I cried, I I felt more more like a cartoon horse than I think any other character has ever made me feel, so <laughs> I'm still waiting for your pop culturist article on why you continue to watch things that make you sad. Oh, I'd read that. I, I wanna read that article. Yeah. Read, watch, and play, because, man, some games yeah. do not make me feel good. Andy, have you read on Twitter Raphael Bob Waxberg's epic 
year over a year in the making long tweet thread about his reboot of Darkwing Duck. No. Boy, do I have a treat for you. I, I'm 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 looking forward to this. I, I might have seen something about this. This but is a, I don't know. This for is sure. a dar- this is I a saga. Excited. It is it is the story of a reboot of the live a live action reboot of Darkwing Duck with a CGI Darkwing Duck who straight up murders people. KJ Appa may or may not be involved in the project. It goes in so many directions. I'll just tell you, Raphael Bob Waxberg with Bojack, with I'm not entirely sure what his named involvement in the studio that also brought us Tuca and Birdie. I know he's not the creative mind behind Tuca and Birdie. Undone. Um, and Undone. So somebody who came up with a, a really good project in Bojack, a great project in, in Bojack, which you know perhaps allowed some other really great projects to exist as well. His book of short stories, I'm going to say it and I'm going to get it wrong. Someone uh, someone Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory is a great collection of short stories. And that tweet thread is just gold. It, it may be one of the best tweet threads I've read in a really long time. And it's been going for over a year. He started it months before Disney Plus launched. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this novel. It is a piece of work. You want to you wanna talk about things that people are going to write a thesis on later? That's it. That should become a running thing on this podcast, things that people will write a thesis about later. The answer is literally anything. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move into are, the Are we going to move on now? Let's move okay. into the monkey part, whether it's a separate episode or not, I don't know. Yeah, so at this point, you've either heard, you, at this point, you've heard either a greatly condensed version of our pop culture roundup for the fourth quarter of 2020, followed by a a conversation that in context makes a whole lot of sense, or you've heard a very out of context conversation. You don't know how we got from the introduction to where we are now. You have a whole bonus episode to find out. Tessa, American Horror Story, tell us about it. All right, so for this, the last week of Spooktober. Thank you. I did. Yeah, they, you're welcome, Andy. You're welcome. The I did American Horror Story Season 1. Um, American Horror Story is an anthology series, for those of you who don't know. So the Season 1 is actually titled Murder House, and it came out in 2011. I had not watched American Horror Story because I really didn't know if it was going to be my thing for a long time. Let's see. In 2011, I I definitely was not as into horror as I am now, so it just didn't seem like something that really struck my fancy. I also was much more into Glee, which was another show that was done by Ryan Murphy. So it just wasn't something that really appealed to me. But over the years, every single time that American Horror Story comes up, people are like, you have to watch Murder House. Murder House is the best season. It's so good. And so I finally decided this was the year I was going to actually sit down and watch season one Murder House. I Again, I chose it because this was the one that was the most recommended to me. It is a self-contained story. So, you know, that's the one thing I love about anthology series. Um, and so that was one of the reasons I wanted to watch it was I didn't feel like I was starting something that I was going to have to keep going on. I could just stop right afterwards if I wanted to. Andy, have you seen any seasons of American Horror Story? I have, I have watched Murder House, Asylum, and Coven. 
So there are there are nine seasons that are out now. So it's Murder House, Asylum, Coven, Freak Show, Hotel, Roanoke, Colt, Apocalypse, and 1984. And I, again, Murder House is the only one that I've seen. I have seen some episodes of some of the later ones because Sam watches them. But some some of these some of these seasons are more controversial than others. Some of them are rated less than other ones. So it kind of depends on what kind of horror fan you are if you like a specific season or not. Really quick, Sam and Tessa, both of you might know this. A pattern I recognized with American Horror Story is the season climax does not happen in the final episode. The season climax usually happens like episode eight or nine. Yes, that is very true for season one. Uh, Roanoke, for example, uh, season six has, I believe, three different climaxes. It's like Every third episode or every other episode, it becomes a different show. That's when they were really like, forget it. We're just going to make it this show, but it's really this show, but it's really this show, which was interesting. But yeah, as you mentioned, it was created by Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. Ryan Murphy, of course, and, and Brad Falchuk both did Glee together. Um, and we, we established before recording this that Glee predated American Horror Story. I know uh, Murphy has said in interviews that he really wanted to do something that was a lot darker than Glee, which is why he sort of leaned into the horror aspect of American Horror Story. Ryan Murphy has also famously done Nip Tuck and a variety of things on Netflix as well. And then Brad Falchuk um, has also done Pose and Scream Queens are the other two uh, real shows that he's involved with as well, as well as being married to Gwyneth Paltrow. I always find that interesting. Uh, American Horror Story season one had 17 Emmy nominations that year in a variety of Golden Globes and and other TV show uh, nominations. It was very positively received by both critics and audiences alike, uh, which explains, I think, its enduring popularity amongst the American Horror Story fans. I know that there are many people out there who haven't taken the the plunge into American Horror Story. At this point, there's so much to choose from, and it can probably seem pretty overwhelming. So what is this season about? So this season, again, titled Murder House, is about the Harmon family, who is really at the center of this particular season. So the Harmon family, Vivian, played by Connie Britton, who has already come up once in this double episode, and Ben, played by Dylan McDermott, and Violet, played by Tessa Farmiga, uh, move from LA to, or sorry, move to LA from Boston to rebuild their lives after Vivian has a traumatic miscarriage and Ben has an affair with one of his students. So they're trying to put their family back together. They decide they need a change of scenery. So they move to LA and they move into an old restored Hollywood mansion. And they are very unaware that the house is named the Murder House by a local tour guide group due to all the violent deaths that have occurred there. Um, so they don't know about any of this when they move in. They find out very quickly, however, that this tour bus literally stops outside of their house every day and talks about all of these terrible deaths that have happened in the house. As they settle in and try to reconnect as a family, they are unaware as well that many of the previous residents still live among them as ghosts. 
that's not really a spoiler. The, the ghost thing happens pretty quickly in this particular show. But I don't really want to go too far into all the different ghosts that live there because there are a lot of twists with the storylines and how they died and, and why they're there and what their motivations are. But that's that's basically the premise of this show is that this family, and, and I feel like this is a really recognizable premise from a lot of horror films. You know, family moves into a house. The house is more than they think that it is. At one point, there's a psychic who... Who's played by Sarah Paulson, who doesn't have much of a role in this season. Sarah Paulson obviously goes on to play huge roles in the rest of American Horror Story, I would say. But she she talks about this character talks about how there's like a dark force or there's a dark energy in the house that's sort of replaying and playing out its fantasies on through the lives of these ghosts. And that's kind of what the the main premise of the house is. Jessica Lang is also a really big fixture of the American Horror Story universe for the first several seasons. And she plays a much more prominent role in this season. Yes. So Jessica Lane plays their next door neighbor, uh, Constance Langdon. And uh, Jessica Lange actually won a Golden Globe for this word, uh, this role, as well as a number of other awards as well. So she plays this this next door neighbor, and she actually used to live in the house, they come to find out. But now she lives next door, and she's very aware of what's going on in the house. But she she's a sort of aging Hollywood, not starlet, because she never made it, ne- never made it, never became famous. But she's still kind of got that like old Hollywood vibe about her. And she has several children, um, one of whom has Down syndrome. And I want to talk about that. But she's always like in the business of the Harmon family. Like she's always like coming in the house unexpected and talking to them about things and warning them about certain facets of the house and being generally creepy. But she she does a quite excellent job. She's she's just kind of this old lady who can't really stay out of anybody's business. But she's also very in tune with the ghosts of the house. And so there's that sort of interaction there. Evan Peters is also, um, I, I don't know, was he in anything else before American Horror Story? For for me, I will always know Evan Peters as the kid from Kick-Ass. Mm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's that too. But he, he plays a major role in this season um, as well as other seasons. And that's, I think, one of the beauties of an anthology series like this is that you get to see these actors sort of play different characters throughout the entire series. I mean, Evan Peters, I believe, has been in almost every season of American Horror Story. And I know he's played different characters and done different things on the show. So that that's always really interesting. Kate Mara is also in this. Um, she's a guest star. Frances Conroy as well. Um, she plays like a, a ghost maid housekeeper um, who shapeshifts, which is really interesting. And then uh, Zachary Quinto is also another standout performance as well. So there's there's quite a few different people here that we will probably recognize either from things they've done outside of the show or things that have led up to the show. If you've seen Glee... You might understand what I'm about to say, which is Tessa just gave you what for any other show would be like the entire first half of the season's worth of information. I think almost everything you've mentioned so far happens within the first half of the first episode. I don't know if all the characters show up, but there is so much jam packed in there. Yeah, and as as both Andy and Sam mentioned, the thing about this season is that it becomes different things. So what I have described to you is probably the bones of this show, but many things there are many genre shifts and different illusions that are happening throughout the show as well. A really good way to describe this at least this season, and I I, I will have to rely on both Andy and Sam for if this is true for the rest of the show. I wouldn't say this is a substantive 
season of television. It's style over substance. They're, they are not concerned with an underlying message or with a plot that really makes a lot of sense. What they're really interested in is the style of horror. And boy, it's a great style. Like it, it's it's actually a really enjoyable thing to watch, but it's a mess like in terms of like actual, you know, there are characters that go nowhere that just seem to be there to horrify. There, there are plot lines that don't really connect up. You know, there's there's a lot of themes going on, but none of those themes are really fully explored. So again, style over substance, but boy, what a style. Uh, it's it's really, really interesting. I will say if there is an underlying theme or current underneath this season of American Horror Story is that Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk are very obsessed with Holly, old Hollywood urban legends. That seems to be something that's really at the undercurrent of this show. There's a lot of, you know, the types of ghost stories that you hear about that are being played out in this house. Black Dahlia um, is a really famous sort of version of this where somebody was found and a very famous serial killer victim. And so that that's something that's brought up in the show. But there are a lot of other references to that kind of thing in the show as well. You mentioned that he's really interested in doing the urban Hollywood legend. And there's just a lot of stuff going on here. Where's the horror? So the horror, I mean, it's all like imagery (laughs) in this particular thing. It's all, you know, slowly realizing that things aren't the way that you thought they were going to be. So the horror, there's a lot of references to sort of moments in Rosemary's Baby, the shining uh, soaps like Dark Shadows. I can't give you all of the references that they're making because that would end up spoiling some of the plot lines for you. But there is a lot of references to both uh, horror films horror television, again, those urban legends, but then also real life events in the U.S. that are truly horrific. Uh, They don't pull any punches. I'm sure they're, by referencing some of these events, they're sort of courting controversy over using these things. It can feel a little exploitative sometimes, but I, I, I think that what they're really doing is trying to give you a sense of shock and a sense of terror at these images. And at some point, they lean into humor pretty hard. There's about a pretty hard left turn, probably like two-thirds of the way through the season, where they sort of go into that side of horror that's actually pretty funny. Like, where you're like, how many people have died in this house? Like, how many ghosts are there actually in here? And, you know, the way that they interact with each other is really interesting. So I would definitely say, you know, there's a lot of humor in here. There's a lot of camp in here. It's not what I would describe as a campy show, but it definitely has some of those elements of camp that that round off the edges of the horror. So I know that you talked about representation of disability, and I was really interested to hear about that when I knew you were going to be watching it. Characters with disabilities are all throughout American Horror Story, not just season four freak show. But as we know, horror movies often are tied to the idea of disability. You can talk about Todd Browning's 1932 movie Freaks and just go from there. So what's it look like in this? So I, you know, I thought about this since we talked about Nightmare on Elm Street a couple weeks ago when we had David Bax on. And I talked a little bit about how I was disappointed that Freddy Krueger, a lot of his horror comes from his disability, from the ways that his face is disfigured. And I think that that's true for a lot of horror film as a genre has a real use of disability as fear. I mean, even characters like Michael Myers, who aren't physically disfigured. I mean, we never see Michael Myers' face, but he's coded as disabled, right? He won't speak. And so there's a lot of those types of representations in horror films. 
This one, the horror villain, there's not, insofar as there is a villain, there isn't really a centralized villain, is not deformed in any way, but disability is still used as the trappings of horror here. So as I mentioned, Constance uh, Langdon, who's played by Jessica Lange, her, she has a daughter who has Down syndrome, who is pretty prominently figured, especially in the first couple of episodes. And we find out later that Constance has another kid. She has like four kids. She has another kid who is also intellectually and physically disabled, who she keeps chained up in the attic and who is also kind of portrayed. He's, he's portrayed as an innocent, but he's also portrayed as part of the horror of the house. Because he's chained up in the attic as sort of this like monster who lives up there. But the reason I decided to bring this up this time is because I actually really wanted to talk about sort of the effect that that has. Like, why is this important that we object to the way disabled people are used in horror to scare other people or to provide sort of this uh, imagery or background to horror? Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, there was a really terrible thing on TikTok called the New Teacher Challenge. Do you know what the New Teacher Challenge was, Andy? No, not at all. Uh, The new teacher challenge involved a set of parents who found pictures of physically deformed people online. So like from Instagram or or, uh, Facebook or Reddit and showed a a picture, this picture to their children and told them that this person was going to be their new teacher and then filmed them having like over the top freaked out reactions to that. The what? This was a real thing that happened, uh, I mean, and is still happening. Um, and TikTok had a really terrible response to it as well. Like, they didn't want to censor any of it or anything like that. And for those of you who are thinking, well, that's terrible, good. You should think that that's terrible. And Melissa Blake, who was one of the people whose face was used um, to do this pretty terrible thing, she wrote a great piece about why it's important that we not participate in these challenges and that why why you shouldn't be using disabled people to scare your children and thinking that that's funny. But she mentioned that the part of the problem is that children often only see disabled people as villains in popular culture. Um, she mentioned specifically Disney villains and how they're often portrayed as disfigured in some way or disabled in some way. But as I was reading this, I realized that's really true for a lot of horror villains as well. And if that's really our only encounter with disabled people, of course that breeds this sort of fear of disability. And it causes a lot of really, really terrible, hateful things to happen online, especially, because a lot of these people talk about how people will just tell them that they should kill themselves or that they you know, shouldn't be posting pictures of themselves or they shouldn't leave their house and that kind of thing. Those attitudes really come from bad representation of disformed and disabled people. So I'm not blaming Ryan Murphy or Brad Falchuk. I think that they were working with a tradition in horror that they thought they were paying homage to. And again, they don't make these, these two characters specifically villains. However, they do use them for shock value to add sort of this horrific atmosphere. So I, I would definitely encourage you as you're doing your, your horror rewatches, do your spooktober um, rewatches to be thinking about the ways in which disabled people are figured in horror films. And, you know, if you're making art to think about, you know, the way you use disability to either inspire fear or to do something else with a character that might have real consequences in real life. 
It's probably good for context, too, just to think about how Ryan Murphy's other show, Glee, has a central secondary character, Becky, who has Down syndrome, and she's played as Sue Sylvester's minion, basically. But she does get agency from time to time, and it's and there are some plots where her disability is the plot, but there are as many or more times when it's not. And it's just interesting that Ryan Murphy is willing to take on some of these issues. Doesn't mean he gets them right, but he he's willing to be inclusive in that way. Overall, a good thing or? Well, and I haven't seen Freak Show and I'm not sure that I ever will. I'm conflicted and torn about it i think that if you are going to tell those stories you should have them told by people who actually like think about the freak show in a way that's empowering instead of as a again a trapping for horror so i i don't know i don't really trust ryan murphy on this on this particular regard i'm i it didn't really hinder my enjoyment of the show but it is something that i think we should be taking more notes on in horror should people watch this show specifically murder house I think especially if you're interested in something that's going to stick with you, that that has some really inventive imagery and some really interesting ideas about horror, it is a lot of homage. Like I said, the plot is a mess. If you're looking for something that's going to be have a lot of depth to it, probably not this. But it's it's really enjoyable at the same time. I mean, I, I couldn't stop watching it. I thought it was really interesting and enjoyable. I would definitely say that there is a lot of content warning, though, um, going into it. It's it, Out of all the things that I've watched this time, this one had the most questionable content in terms of trigger warnings. Will you watch future seasons of American Horror Story? And if so, do you know which ones? You know, after watching this, I kind of think I might. I don't, again, I don't really want to watch something like Freak Show, but I might watch Asylum next year. Like that might, this might become an October thing for me where I watch a, watch a season. Andy, can you rank Murder House, Asylum, and Coven? Rank that list. God, this is going to get me so much hate. I don't think that American <laughs> Horror Story is good. I, I think it's interesting. I, I think that, that there are great moments. Uh, I think it goes Coven, Murder House, Asylum, if you really oh. had to. Like, like from best to, to worst? Is that what you just said? So you, you like Coven, Coven the best. Uh, Coven is the craziest, but I, I really, I don't, I don't think it's good. I think you had it right, Tessa. It's a, a mood. It's a feeling. It's, it's kind of whatever. I mean, that, that's why that's, I never. That's the conversation up. I've been having with myself for years about this show. It's why I watched one episode of Scream Queens and said, "No, I'm not going to keep watching your shows if they don't have anything behind them." But I'll keep watching this one, and Glee. I, I would say Hotel. It's a lot of hate. Just a lot, a lot of hate. It's in my top five. Clearly, the first three seasons are the best. Murder House, Asylum, and Coven. I think maybe Asylum is better than Murder House, possibly, because there is real horror there, like real scary horror, more so than the first season. As you said, Coven's a mess, but there's there's a really great casting choice that I'm not even going to talk about because it's a major spoiler. But it's great. It's wonderful. I love it. Is it a famous musician? Uh, it could very well be. But Hotel and Roanoke have some good stuff in them. Roanoke is when he really just throws away the playbook and starts to invert plots. And and Hotel, man, like if you like Guns N' Roses, if you like Lady Gaga, if you like that late 80s L.A. noir aesthetic and Lady Gaga does not put you off, you should watch that season. 
I will say I have seen one episode of Cult because you started watching it, I think, when it came out. And I was just like, nope. Like, I got 10 minutes into it and I was like, I can't. Nope. This is too real. Anything that's about the current political climate in that sort of mood, I was like, I'm out. I can't do this. So I, I think I probably will watch more of them, but I think maybe Freak Show and Cult are just two things I can't do. I, I do want to uh, recommend to people who like the idea of a horror anthology TV show, uh, check out Channel Zero. It is weirder than American Horror Story, also kind of terrifying uh, in different ways, and I think it's just better than American Horror Story, especially season three. One last thing, and then I'll stop talking about American Horror Story. Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. Aaron Sorkin does not know how to use Sarah Paulson, but Ryan Murphy sure does. Sarah Paulson acts rings around literally everyone, except for possibly Jessica Lange. Sarah Paulson is given different stuff every year, completely different things, and just tears it up, chews scenery every time. And then she eventually gets called back to do previous characters, scenes removed from her current character. She just goes for it all. She is great. All right. Well, moving on from American Horror Story, which we all had a lot of opinions about, Andy, tell us about Color Out of Space. Oh, boy. Color Out of Space. You might have um, seen the the trailers or the posters for this. Uh, it, it got a little bit of hype at the beginning of the year and at the end of last year. This is a Nicolas Cage horror movie based on a uh, H.P. Lovecraft uh, story. Oh, good. H.P. Lovecraft. Well, uh, I, I will go ahead and say one of the actors in this whose character's name is Ward Phillips, you know, Howard Phillips, is played by Elliot Knight, who is uh, a person of color. So, uh, by the way, the H.P. and H.P. Lovecraft stands for Howard Phillips. So naming a character Ward Phillips and having them having him playing a uh or having him be a person of color, that is a uh, a definite strong middle finger to... I was going to say, do you feel like this is a remix then? There are definitely some things like that. Um, there are lots of Easter eggs to Lovecraft himself, who, again, I'm, I'm going to stress, was a huge racist. Even if you're like, oh, but, you know, he lived so long ago, and back then everyone was racist. No, no, he was racist by those standards. He made his own friends who were also racist uncomfortable. Uh, so, Color Out of Space is about the Gardner family. It, Nicholas Cage is the father. I forgot his name. It doesn't matter. Okay, the the names don't matter. What matters is the very much like American Horror Story, the vibe and the feel of this. And this is about a meteorite crashing to Earth, and then weird, weird things happening in the proximity of this movie. It is a feeling so much about how, how, what you feel as you're watching this. Is this a dread situation? No, no. This is confusion and just curiosity and not being able to understand things. Like, and 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 th that makes it sound like it's a bad movie, and it is not. This this movie is is awesome. Oh, I was gonna ask you. So so, what do you think? How how is Nicolas Cage's performance in this film? I'm always curious to know about Nicolas Cage and his performances. Okay. Okay. So, so, so Nick Cage, good old uh, Mr. Cage, he starts out playing a character who is, he's the patriarch of the family. They've, they've moved to his father's old farmhouse. They have, they, they, you know, they're, they're trying kind of to, to restart after the, uh, his wife 
had cancer and had uh, some kind of surgery. Uh, they, they don't really discuss that, but Nicholas Cage is Nathan. His name is Nathan Gardner. He's in this very small town. He's a, he's a little off, right? Everything is a little off about this movie. And that definitely adds to the atmosphere of the movie. It adds to a lot of it. Uh, it, it just feels a little off. So when the weird things start happening and the, uh, the titular color actually starts affecting the minds of those around it, he's already a little weird. So people don't see him, you know, pulling a, uh, a Jack Torrance from the shining, right? Like, like this isn't, this isn't a sharp turn for his character. His character's already a little off. So Nick Cage does a great job. Um, and I want to go ahead and say one of the things this movie is directed by Richard Stanley. Now you might think to yourself, oh, I don't know who Richard Stanley is, but you may have heard about one of the very, 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 very famous Hollywood failures where Richard Stanley was originally the director and then he was kicked out and replaced by a, a, a director uh, named John Frankenheimer. But that is the 1996 film, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Color Out of Space is the first film he directed since he attempted to direct this giant movie with Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer, and Ron Perlman, and a bunch of other stuff. It's just a legendary bomb. Just a legendary bomb. 1996 is The Island of Dr. Moreau. So, so he took like 25 years off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really can't... If you've never seen The Island of Dr. Moreau, like... You need to, it is, it is bizarre. Marlon Brando is doing something and he is, he is past his point of caring. There, there, there's actually a, a, a documentary called the Island of Lost Souls about how badly this movie, like the creation of this movie and how far off the rails it went, how far Val Kilmer went, how far Marlon Brando went. Like it's, it's. It's insane. I was about to say, there's uh, a lot of Ron people you just listed that can go pretty far. <laughs> right, you right, right. Andy, do you think that if we didn't have Nicolas Cage, that Val Kilmer would be Nicolas Cage? Possibly. Um, we need to do a Nicolas Cage theme episode. I would love to do that. But, um, oh man, that, that, that's such a great idea. But anyway, uh, Richard Stanley, his favorite performance by Nicolas Cage is from a movie called Vampire's Kiss. If you don't know this beautiful 1988 movie, this is the one where uh, Nicolas Cage... You've definitely seen the memes from it. The the Nicolas Cage with his eyebrows all up looking like, oh, you don't think. It, it, it is one of the insane Nick Cage movies. Uh, but he told Nicolas Cage, apparently, he wants the exact same kind of performance. And oh boy, does does Mr. Cage give it. So on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being, I don't know, has Nicolas Cage ever been restrained? No. One being Nicolas Cage is not in this movie, and ten being what's a what's a good reference here for Nicolas Cage? Face Off. No, Face Off is fairly restrained based on where I know he goes later. What what would we say is the most like? Is this ten? No, no, like 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 that's that is the thing. This character it like starts out at like a three on the Nick Cage score and will go up to like a, an eight. But we'll go back down to the three. Uh, and and talking about how crazy Nicolas Cage is really does not do this justice. Uh, to, to give you an example of of how this color is starting to affect people, though, there's a scene where Nick Cage is talking to his daughter and he's very upset with her. And he goes off uh, like completely off the handle, goes 
so like just yells at her and uh i mean you, you know it's it's almost the level of ah the bees the bees and then he goes inside the house and he tells his wife he's like i don't know what to do i i just lost it on her and so so it's not this descent into madness where the level increases and doesn't go down it's this descent into madness where events keep happening that just drive it more and more insane. But then they go, people go back to the baseline. So it's this creepy film where you're not certain what's, what's happening. It is all magenta and purple and blue. And it just gives you the feeling of cosmic horror. These people don't understand what's happening to them. There's no way they could understand what's happening to them. And, you know, maybe they're better off if they don't. Uh, color plays a huge, surprisingly, a huge part of the color in space. The meteorite that crashes affects the groundwater. And so every time someone's drinking water or, or drinking something, there are these, are these shimmers of magenta in Nick Cage's ice cubes. And you know things are, are just not right. And then, and, and by the way, this is all like the first third of the movie. <laughs> And it builds up from there. There are, it is just a feeling, not of dread, but just curiosity that drives this movie. Is this one of those movies where the color makes you feel like a little like, yeah. like you're like, there's something off. Like, like, it's not just like, oh, well, like we know that the color is driving them crazy, but like, you know, like those movies where you're watching them and the color just makes you feel like there's something off. Right. And, 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 that, and that's the thing is, it's only when this uh, quote unquote color from space is visible that it feels off. Everything else feels fine, right? Like, like, like that's this movie is so beautifully done in conveying what H.P. Lovecraft tries to convey in, in his books. There are also references, so many references uh, you hear on a local news station. They mention Innsmouth, Dunwich, and and some other stuff. Like, like you f do find out they are in Arkham County which is a lot where a lot of Lovecraft stuff takes place. There also are moments where the dialogue doesn't quite feel of our day and time. Like, like, like it almost feels like um, that, that Joss Whedon much ado about nothing, but this is all about just what the color out of space is doing. Bizarre. There, there is body horror. I would, I would almost say that this movie is the fly meets a very, serious version of evil dead okay yeah i could see that yeah it, it it is it is very slow it is a slow burn film all all of the the body count and everything that doesn't happen until the last 20 minutes of the movie and the movie is all the better for it like this is this is a solid solid horror flick uh this is a a it's it's weird it's very much like the thing too um you know, John Carpenter's the thing, not the uh, the other one that was made by the uh, director I can't think of the name of from 2011 with Ramona Flowers in it. Th this movie's really cool. If you liked our discussion on cosmic horror, it's a little bit too violent or, or gross for me to like recommend to like my wife. This is not a over the top gory movie. This is mostly slow and understated. And full of mysteriousness. And the only time that I will ever be terrified of alpacas. <laughs> Is this a movie for fans of Nicolas Cage? 
this this is a, definitely a movie for fans of Nicolas Cage. I think if you watched the movie Mandy, uh, which is Nicolas Cage's action movie that came out the year before, you understand exactly what kind of movie this is. It's it's so it's just so cool. Seriously, uh, this is a a movie where I I like look through the trivia section of IMDb and people are like, well, if you if you actually pause, there are frames of this movie that are like designed to feel out of place. There are frames of the movie where like scenes from earlier in the movie are overlapped and you don't know that. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I, I, if any of this sounds cool, watch it. Uh, it is not for everybody, but it is for a very specific type of person who likes cosmic horror. And, and this is as cosmic as it can get. So pretty strong recommend from you. Yes. 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 I, I can't wait for a few weeks down the road when we can talk about Nicolas Cage some more. I'm really looking forward to it. I think he is a national treasure. I think he is a, a national treasure too, book of secrets. He, he at Oscar winning Nicolas Cage is truly a great actor. And, and I mean that with no jokes at all. I, I, and I mean, I also have to respect somebody who um, changes his name based on the comic book character Luke Cage. Because he doesn't want to be uh, tied to his famous uncle. Who is? Francis Ford Coppola, director of The Godfather. And that is the second time we worked in the Coppola family today. Yeah, so uh, definitely give this a watch if you, if this is the kind of movie. Uh, you, I mean, I think you you know. This is bizarre and wonderful and, and awesome. And I just want more Nick Cage like this because his last few years have been pretty solid. Okay, Sam. Yes. What, what did you experience? I, for the first time ever, most for the most part, interacted with the horror, survival horror franchise that is Resident Evil. What, what, it, what exactly is Resident Evil? Well, we're not going to do this bit again like we did with Assassin's Creed. Resident Evil began as a 1996 video game by Capcom. Capcom, as a video game company, made my life so much better. Back in the 80s and early 90s, Mega Man, DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Mickey Mouse Capade, Ghost and Goblin, Street Fighter, Final Fight. This is nothing like that. This is not something you would find on the first two generations of Nintendo. This is originally uh, a game for the PlayStation 1. I played the HD remaster, uh, which is, I guess, the re-release of a remaster from 2015. Resident Evil itself has... 25 titles under the video game franchise, including sequels and remakes. It is also a film franchise from 2002 to 2016. There are six films, the the first one and subsequent. Some of the subsequent were directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, but the big draw is Mila Jovovich. Currently, a reboot is under production, originally for a while James Wan of uh, Fast 7 and Aquaman was attached to it as a producer, but he is not anymore. So who knows? I know very little other than that about this franchise. Andy, what do you know about Resident Evil, the video game franchise? I know that Resident Evil 4 was a ton of fun on the GameCube back in the day. I also know that it has a monolithic lore behind it that I just don't even want to attempt getting into. And uh, I know that there is another movie coming out. 
And so that's the other question. I haven't seen any of these movies. Tessa and Andy, take it away. I mean, I haven't seen any of them. I've seen the first two, and I will say I I liked the first one especially. I think it's it's actually really good, and I would I would highly recommend it, even though it has made me terrified of ele- elevators. But it is de- from what I've seen from Sam you playing this game, and because I had never played any of the games, that the movie is definitely a very 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 loose allusion to the games in a lot of ways. At least the first one, it see, the first one seems more like a traditional zombie film, zombie action film, I would say, than than the game seemed to be. But I, I enjoyed the first one. I enjoyed the second one, too. I haven't seen any of the other ones. From what I know of them, they seem to have descended into Fast and Furious territory. But who knows? I, I've seen them com- compared to the Underworld series in Diminishing Returns and a spotlighting of their leading lady. Yeah, I would I would definitely say at least with the first one I would compare to Underworld, but I'm a huge Underworld fan, so I'm always going to prefer that series. I w- yeah, I would say they're comparable, the same mood, the same um, you know, female character be, you know, supernaturally being this, you know, kick-ass action star. I I think that that's definitely a mood from the early 2000s and you can definitely see that in both those series. I do want to say just tie up to this either the pre-episode bonus this week or not. Paul W.S. Anderson is directing the video game adaptation or the movie adaptation of Monster Hunter, which is supposed to be scheduled to come out on December 29th. So that could happen. Uh, Don't tweet me about it. People who listen to Geek 101 when it was on uh, know Ariel and I are both. Pretty big fans of the video games, Monster Hunter, also starring Milo Jojovich. What I know about Resident Evil is Resident Evil 4 was a lot of fun and nothing else really, except that it's a dense tome of lore. So so let me help you on your the road that you have no interest in going down, it sounds like. Let me introduce you to the lore. Okay, what how how is Resident Evil 1? What 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 is that about? Okay. So very, very quickly, you're you're kind of dropped in in the middle of the narrative and you start to piece it together. And I will say I have not finished and I will tell you why soon. But you are a character who is employed by STARS, Special Tactics and Rescue Service. I played many, many years ago with my brother. He had borrowed from a friend, the Resident Evil game that introduced Nemesis. So every time I see stars, I hear stars. So anyway, Special Tactics and Rescue Service have come to investigate a mansion on the outskirts of Raccoon City. Are there murders? Is there cannibalism? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is the character that you play is part of the second team of stars because the first team has gone missing so this is that old trope about how the first people in have gone missing so you have to investigate the thing and the disappearance of the first team who was also investigating the thing are there zombies yes are there monsters yes is there a conspiracy was there ever any doubt and so that's that's where we are with resident evil one pretty pretty simple to start with Tell them about your character's name, because there's a choice, right, that you make at the beginning about what version of this character you play. So I I really do want to talk about the gameplay, and I'll do that in more detail in a minute. But choose your fighter. Do you want to be Chris Redfield, Brawny 
strong, able to take damage, but not so good with the firearms and can't carry so many things? Or do you want to be Jill Valentine, who comes equipped with a lockpick and eight instead of six inventory slots? Quick question here. Do you know in the movie series, uh, Chris Redfield was in two movies. Do you know who played Chris Redfield? No. Fan favorite of the podcast, Wentworth Miller. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I like that. Wentworth Miller needs more work. Unless he's choosing not to and that's his own choice. But if not, we need to see him in more things. Let's talk about the gameplay because I've heard it always called tank controls. Elaborate. Not a fan. One of the things that you really need to understand about this game is that it is not a shooter. So immediately my interest level drops a good 50%. I did play as Jill Valentine, not Chris Redfield. And I didn't really know the difference with the inventory and the powers and stuff. And I didn't really care. This is a preview of cyberpunk. As, as a white man, I have lived a white man's life. I have read books where white man, white men are the main characters. I've watched TV shows, movies, comic books, whatever. I've been forced for most of my video game playing life to assume the role of a white man. I could live my entire life without that again. It's much more fun to experience other people's viewpoints. So I did pick Jill Valentine. The lockpick is a pretty cool skill. I think I made the right choice. This game is all about inventory management and not shooting things. How, how is that possible in a zombie game? These are shamble zombies, not 28 Days Later zombies. So it's not that hard to get away from them. It's about how when somebody is shambling down a narrow corridor, how do you do a football move and get around them? That That's the kind of game we're talking about here. There are, uh, the game is mostly in and around the mansion. You tread through rooms dozens of times, going back and forth. You will become familiar with the map. You get pieces of the map. Eventually you will not need it because you will have it memorized. There are puzzles and booby traps. It's not a shooter. It's an avoidance game. It's inventory management. It's a puzzle game. It's a, I'm in a room, click, 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 find all the things. And it has that hallmark of early disc-based games, which is the loading time. What? No, it just shows you a bunch of doors opening. Uh, the, for, for those of you who aren't in the know, the, the way that Resident Evil got away with hiding a bunch of the loading times was every time you would open a door, it would show you a scene of a door being opened very slowly. So, which, by the way, is super creepy. I just want that on the record. That might, might be the creepiest part of watching this game. It is one of the better gimmicks. Of, of hiding the loading screen. And I appreciate it. But here's the real problem. As I mentioned at the top, you can only save so many times. You have a resource, a typewriter ribbon, that you will put in a typewriter to save your game. And depending on your difficulty, there are only so many of those ribbons around. So you have to make strategic choices. Should I save or should I do this thing next? And I cannot tell you the number of thing, times the thing I did next killed me, and then I had to go half an hour back and do it all over again. When you add that up with the loading time and the fact that I can't just shoot people, it was a real problem for me. The RPG lover in me was screaming during most of watching him do this. Like, I have to save like after I do every single thing. So I, I don't know if I could play this game. I think it would drive me crazy. And, and the last thing to mention here is uh, Resident Evil's 
the first one, the other hallmark is the camera angles. They are supposed to disorient you in the way that horror movies do. You never know what's coming around the corner. You really don't because the camera won't show it to you. And so that's pretty cool, except the way that it messes with your controller. If I'm pushing up on the thumbstick to move forward, when the camera angle shifts, I am now moving backwards by pushing forward on my thumbstick. But if I, if I move too quickly to push back on the thumbstick, it's still oriented to the last camera angle and you get all going in the wrong direction. It's not great. What I'm trying to tell you here is that the Resident Evil HD's greatest strengths are indeed also its greatest weaknesses. That's kind of what I've heard. It's just a very dated game. It's not that much fun. Oh, I there's plenty of fun to be had, I think. Um, I am enjoying it. I'm not finished because of the inventory management and limited number of saves. You really have to be able to sit down and play it for a couple hours at a time. And I haven't had time for that recently. So I haven't finished. I made some real strides. I'm close and I enjoy it. I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. But... It's a particular game for a particular type of player. And I'm just not that particular type of player. But having said that, I have enjoyed it. Awesome. So what type of player would you recommend this to? Okay, so uh, recommendation. Like I said, if you are somebody who likes to shoot everything in sight, you will be very, very frustrated for the vast majority of this game. When you can blow a zombie's head off, it feels so good. So... You know, if you like the horror genre, this is a very good video game. If you have patience and time, this is a very good game. I have neither. So, having said that, not only will I finish this game, 2 and 3 have been remade recently. I'll probably get to them. So, I would, I would recommend with caveats. Okay, recommend with caveats. Got it. All right, that's it. Spooktober's over. <laughs> it is time to defrost your turkeys, put up your Christmas trees, your menorahs, get your streamers, your hearts, your cupids, your shamrocks, your Easter eggs, your flags, and other decorations for what is surely the weirdest holiday season ever because time means nothing. Celebrate whatever you want, whenever you want. Tune in next week. Tessa checks an animated classic off her list with Spirited Away. Andy watches whatever the heck he feels like watching because the world's on fire and he can't plan that far ahead. It's a real mood you got going on there, Andy. It's true. I'll check in to see if Danny LaRusso is still a man who will fight for your honor. That's right. I'm going to finally check out the How I Met Your Mother running gag turned actual television show Cobra Kai, starring poet William Zabka. We'll also be joined by co-host of Never Made Varsity and Martha and Colby Grow Up, Colby Waddell. All right, Andy, where can we find you online? You can find me online, uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Hebrews Pale Ale. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9 and on Letterboxd at ArchieLeach9. You can also find Tessa, Andy, and me at our new home, popculturisthub.com. Our Instagram and Twitter accounts for The Pop Culturist are at popculturisthub. Let us know your thoughts about what we talked about today, anything you'd like to see us talk about on future episodes, 
and anything else pop culture related, don't forget, make plans to watch The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Our theme song Hotshot by Scott Holmes can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Help us help you get that monkey off your backlog. This was a pop culture. Uh...